The American History Podcast, Season 2, Episode 25, The Battle of Monterrey. Welcome to the American History Podcast. Hosted by Sean Morswick. All right, so welcome back to the show. I'm glad you could join in on the fun today. Before we get started, let me just remind you to head over to our website and join the email list. I try not to bombard you with a ton of email, but about once a week or so, maybe twice a week, I do try to send out an email, which I think you'll find interesting. If you are enjoying the show, then you can, or you should join that email list. Also, if you're on Twitter, you can follow me. My handle is at AmericanHisCast. So before we start off the show today, I just want to do a mini update. I've thought about the idea of starting a Patreon. Now, if you don't know what Patreon is, it's a platform for content creators, and this would allow me to create content for a subscription fee. The way it will work is that for $3 a month, you'll be given access to a bonus series. It's guaranteed one episode per month um, in that series. The main show itself will continue to remain free, and would continue to produce at least two episodes a month. Although, as you've probably noticed lately, I'm giving you far more than just two per month. If there are enough subscribers, I would love to dedicate more time and give you all two bonus episodes per month, but we'll have to see how many subscribers we get. And once the series ends, then a new bonus series will begin. So the first bonus series for our Patreons will be The Cold War, 1983. I think it's something you're going to find Fascinating and will truly enjoy. So head over to Patreon and sign up. The first bonus episode will be released in May. The link for our Patreon will be on the website. All right, so as for this episode, be sure to head over to the website. I've uploaded some photos and some maps to help you visualize the area and the city and what's going on in Monterrey. Um, I've even put up some photos of what Monterrey looks like today. Okay, so the song of the week this week is one that's a traditional American folk song. It can be traced all the way back to 17th century Britain, but you probably sang it as a kid. The song is She'll Be Coming Around the Mountain, and we'll see you on the other side. She's gonna come from Sourwood Mountain when she comes. She's gonna come from the Sourwood Mountain when she comes. She's gonna come from the Sourwood Mountain. She'll be a hollering and she'll be shouting. She's gonna come from Sourwood Mountain when she comes. She'll be driving a mule and a wagon when she comes. She'll be driving a mule and a wagon when she comes. She'll be driving a mule and a wagon and her feet will be a dragon for they won't. Okay, so we left off with our last episode, um, with Santa Ana returning to Mexico. While we took the political story up to mid-September, we now need to catch up with the military events. This is, after all, not a season in which we will focus simply on diplomacy or political history. We will certainly have a little bit of military history in there as well. So let's get started. Now, since the end of May, while Mexico had focused on changing governments, the United States was focused on reinforcing its troops. Taylor had not only gained much-needed troops, he had moved toward the city of Monterrey. And so by September 10th, the army 
was halfway between the border and that city, increasingly find it, finding itself deeper and deeper in hostile territory. Now, one of the groups which I've not mentioned much this season, but I really should at least mention now, is the Texas Rangers. Let's face it, if there's any image of Texas which is familiar around the world, it's probably the Texas Rangers. As historian Michael Collins states in his recent work, Texas Devils, Rangers, and Regulars on the Lower Rio Grande, 1846-1861, quote, the mythic ranger commands his rightful place with the cowboy and the fallen defender of the Alamo in the holy trinity of Texas tradition, end quote. Now, the Texas Ranger is certainly a controversial subject. Today, the Rangers are a law enforcement agency, but historically speaking, they were more mercenary than police officer, soldiers of fortune and filibusters who were, as Colin states, more interested in extending the boundaries of Texas and the United States than they were in law enforcement. Unofficially, they were created by Stephen F. Austin in 1823 in a call to arms, but were officially created on October 17, 1835, their purpose being border protection. At least there was, that was their official purpose. Now, the Rangers were, at the end of the day, a creation of their environment, and a harsh and unforgiving environment it was. These units were sometimes ineffective, oftentimes they were brutal, and they were almost always more concerned with the application of brute force than with the law. Known for the violence they inflicted on Mexicans and Indians in the westward expansion of the United States and the efforts to anglicize Texas, Collins argues that while they were often represented racism, prejudice, and even hatred towards Mexicans and Indians, contributing to the cycle of violence which marred the region in the 19th century, the Texas Rangers were not always villainous. Sometimes Mexicans on both sides of the border and those of Mexican heritage fell victim to outrages committed by their own people. Now, be that as it may, the news of the American victories in early May spread across Texas. More than 5,000 Rangers rushed to volunteer for service in the war. Each of these men was, to quote Collins, a veritable arsenal on horseback, eager to avenge the martyrs of the Alamo as well as punish Mexicans for other atrocities, both real and imagined. No doubt, these men had a unique appearance compared to the soldiers of the U.S. Army. Imagine, if you will, the shock of the regular soldiers as they looked upon the Rangers, a group which resembled a mob more than a military unit. Samuel C. Reed, a member of the Army at the time, described the scene thus, quote, Men in group with long beards and mustaches, dressed in everyday variety of garment, with one exception, the slouched hat, the unmistakable uniform of a Texas Ranger, and a belt of pistols around their waists. A rougher-looking set we never saw, end quote. Now, there was no evidence of ranks, no uniform, no unit insignia, just a bunch of men who resembled outlaws and bandits more than they resembled soldiers. However, these characters soon proved their worth as soldiers, and they were soon admired for their stealth and their valor in battle. Another account of the Rangers at this point notes they had a strange appearance. Their faces and their clothes, quote, all covered with a mixture of mud, mortar, powder, and blood, eyes bloodshot, with a hungry, savage look which was truly fearful, end quote. Needless to say, these weren't the sort to be messed with. I guess you could say they were fit representatives of the Lone Star State. Now, as for the Mexican army, thanks to this disgrace of General Arista, and the incompetence of General Mejia, Pedro de Ampudia found himself in command, promoted to General-in-Chief of the Army of the North. Ampudia had visions of glory, 
and he hoped he could defeat Taylor before Santa Ana assumed command of the army, as he surely would. And the plan was to hit the Americans 25 miles north of Monterrey, at the town of Marin. By this point, the Mexican army in the region had been reinforced with the arrival of fresh regular forces from Guadalajara. Thus, the Mexicans had gained, again, numerical superiority. Of course, it wouldn't be as easy as simply attacking the Americans. Ampudia, on September 11th, rode up to inspect the terrain around Marin, and he met with Anastasio Torrejon, the leader of the cavalry forces which had been shadowing Taylor's army. A war council amongst the Mexican officers was held on September 13th, just two days later, and this showed Ampudia that his fellow officers did not have the same zeal he had for attacking the enemy. These men all preferred to remain behind the protective fortifications of Monterrey. Unable to override all of his subordinates, and certainly aware that the morale of the troops was fairly brittle, Ampudia agreed. At least he would have a larger force and a strong position with which to face the invaders. Now, Monterrey itself was essentially a fortress. Homes were constructed of stone, and the streets were straight. Thus, each house was itself, in and of itself a strong point. To the west, Independence Hill overlooked the city. As long as it remained in Mexican hands, Ampudia would be able to protect his lines of supply, which ran to the west. On the south and east sides, the city was protected by the Santa Catarina River. Thus, attack from either of those directions would be difficult. Behind the river to the south rose the majestic Sierra Madre. The entire area was dominated by a monstrous fortification called the Citadel. Located about a thousand yards to the north of the city, it had walls 30 feet high. Nearly unassailable, it held 30 artillery pieces and 400 troops, and its guns could reach almost any point north or east of the city. The Americans, upon seeing it, dubbed it the Black Fort. Now, upon first glance, the Mexican positions looked impregnable, but they did have one glaring weakness. The individual positions were so far apart that mutual support was almost impossible. Ampudia made the foolish decision to man all of the defensive positions at once and had no forces in reserve. In other words, Taylor was given the opportunity to simply hit one position hard and take it, and then he could move on and take another using the same tactic he would be free to pick them off one by one. Now one wonders why Ampudia chose this tactic. Simple, he and his soldiers, veterans of previous engagements with the, Mexi with the Americans, were nervous. The citizens of Monterrey were also nervous. The cooperation between the citizens and the soldiers actually boosted the morale and the confidence of all involved. However, as John Eisenhower notes in his book that we've been referring to on and off again, there was a problem they were unaware of. The weakest link in the Mexican defenses was the commander himself. The commander certainly looked soldierly. He was tall, straight, great goatee and mustache. But he was no more popular in Monterrey than he had been in Matamoros. The problem for him was that the people in general perceived him to be a coward. Further, his weakness and vacillation would cost the Mexican army precious time in building up and tearing down positions as needed. Either way, the soldiers under his command and the citizens of Monterrey continued to work as the American army approached. Now, speaking of the Americans, they moved inexorably towards their goal. Taylor's army, led by a division of Texans, reached the plain in front of the city on September 19th. Almost immediately, the battery on the top of the citadel opened fire. Taylor ordered his army to set up camp 
while the engineers assessed the situation. Within the city, the strong points were the Black Fort, the Tannery, El Fortín del Rincón del Diablo. All of these were major strong points and would prove to be difficult to take. Now, the problem for Taylor at this point, though, was the Texans, with whom Taylor was riding, and they were anxious for a fight. They had spotted a body of Mexican lancers in between them and the city, and they were determined to engage. However, Taylor himself was not eager to support this move, as it would place them within range of the guns that were stationed on the citadel, and he firmly ordered them to stand down. Now, as I've mentioned before, it's not my goal to get into the minute details of the battles. Suffice it to say that Taylor decided to attack the western flank of the city using General William Worth's division, and at the same time, use the main body of his forces to attack from the east. It took Worth a day to get into position, and his attack began on September 20th, about 2 p.m. By the next day, the road to the west had been severed by Worth, and in the meantime, Taylor himself had begun to take the various strong points. Now at 3 a.m. on the 23rd of uh, September, General Worth sent members of the Texas Rangers to take the Fort uh, Libertad on Independence Hill, which they did as the sun rose. Now this engagement itself was bloody and chaotic. The Texans were caught out in the open, and they had to fight their way back on horseback. The Mexicans, who were led by Lieutenant Colonel Juan N. Najera, with their red and green pennants fluttering in the wind, they charged forward. Retreating while returning fire, the Texans were caught in the open, but they were given covering fire by their, by their fellow soldiers who were not out in the open. Unfortunately for the Mexican cause, Najera fell in the fight. Before, the long, before long, the Mexican squadron was nearly destroyed and was forced to flee back towards Monterrey, leaving behind about 100 dead and wounded after a fight that lasted all of 15 minutes. Needless to say, this broke the Mexican resistance to some extent, and around 0800, Worth penned a short note to Taylor saying, quote, this town is ours, end quote. This was a bit premature, but it was an indication of what was to come. Ampudia was now cut off from one of his, his one source of resupply and reinforcement. Be that as it may, by 2 p.m. on that same day, General Worth entered the city from the west. Taylor, for his part, found the 21st of September to be one of the worst of his military career. Unable to fully break through, his troops exhausted from the day's exertions, the Americans under Taylor pulled back and rested and recovered on the 22nd. Now by the 23rd, the situation had turned in favor of the Americans. By this point, both Taylor and Worth were in the city. The Mexicans were fighting the Americans house to house, and the fighting was no doubt vicious. Late that day, Taylor withdrew his forces from the town, only two blocks away from linking up with Worth's forces, who were continuing to move forward out of the west. It was at this point that General Ampudia realized the situation was lost, and he decided to negotiate a two-month armistice. In exchange, he gave the city to the Americans. Taylor had another victory to add to his list, and the Mexican in the arm, nor, army in the north was in dire straits. Now this was an interesting battle, in that the Mexicans had suffered fewer casualties than did the Americans. The U.S. Army had 488 killed and wounded, 368 wounded, the rest were killed, while the Mexican Army had 367 total killed and wounded. Now the fallout from the fact that Taylor signed an armistice with, with Ampudia was swift. I don't think I need to tell you 
that President Polk was less than happy with the situation. In his eyes, the duty of the army was not to negotiate with the enemy. They were supposed to, quote, kill the enemy, end quote. Now, on the Mexican side, they had held off the Americans for three days. The Mexicans, they had been well supplied and well fortified. Uh, had it not been for American urban battle tactics, they might have held out even longer. With a competent commander, I have no doubt they would have. In the end, this retreat shattered the Mexican army's morale, or at least what was left of it. Now, as for the American army, the occupation would last until June 1848. As soon as the Mexican army retreated, the Americans committed several executions of civilians, and there were more than a few women who were raped. In other towns that were occupied by American forces, especially those occupied by the Texas Rangers, numerous acts of violence against the population was committed, or were committed. Okay, so that's all for today. We'll leave off with the Americans on the march, having notched another victory. In our next episode, we will address the war in both New Mexico and California. If you're enjoying the show, please do me a big favor. It's a free way for you to give us, our, give us your support. Head over to iTunes and give us a five-star review, or at least give us a five-star rating if you don't have the time. This helps people to find our show and grow our listening base. If you would like to make a monetary contribution, please head over to the website and become a member of our Patreon. Again, I appreciate all of the support you give to the show, and I truly hope you are enjoying the content. Until next time, good day. Mm-hmm.